Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kim. Well, um, late last year, maybe November or December, our oldest daughter, Elliot, lost two front teeth. Two front teeth in two days. And um, a couple weeks after, we were you know, very excited and right around Christmas, so all I want for Christmas was my two front teeth. It was just poetically perfect. Uh, a couple weeks later, a box arrived in the mail, and it was addressed to Elliot, and the return address said, the Tooth Fairy's assistant. And then there was an address that we didn't recognize on that box. And inside the box, we, well, I guess somebody sent her, heard and sent her something, Uh, We opened the box, and inside the box was this little tiny piece of candy shaped like like a whole row of teeth, which is a weird piece of candy. Like it just, and imagine it, and and it was weirder than that. Um, And it was just this weird, like like sweet moment and surreal. And then I looked at the box again, and I looked, um, the postage was listed on this box. And the postage said $10.40. Somebody, we still don't know who sent that box. I have a couple ideas. I'm not really certain. Somebody who we barely even know, or maybe don't know, spent $10.40 to mail a weird piece of candy that's probably worth less than a quarter 
to our daughter just to make her feel special after she lost her two front teeth. There's an old saying, if you want to bless somebody, bless their kids. And that person blessed Jamie and me by blessing our kids. But I've been thinking about that again as we're thinking about beauty. That, um, that is not efficient. It's, some might even say that was a waste of money and resources. Like, couldn't they have shipped it in something smaller? Or couldn't they have just Venmoed us a quarter? Or couldn't they have just... Like, there are all sorts of different ways that you could have, sure, celebrated and congratulated her and made her feel special that would have been much less costly. I mean, just think, the person had to just deal with standing in line at the post office. Like, all of this, just for her. It's not efficient. By some measure... You might say it was even wasteful, and yet, as her father, I say that was beautiful. That was beautiful. We're thinking about beauty as we begin the new year. And we're thinking about it for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is that the world we live in tends to value efficiency and productivity and optimization, getting as much as you can for as little as possible, Squeezing every last drop out of whatever we can. Let nothing, this is a good New England value, let nothing go to waste, right? And yet as we read scripture and as Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God, he teaches us that God's kingdom is not a utilitarian kingdom. It's not a kingdom where God just does what is efficient and moves on. It's a beautiful kingdom, And in fact, the more we think about beauty and the more we learn about beauty in the scriptures and from Jesus, we understand and we start to realize that the pursuit of beauty demands inefficiency. You cannot have beauty and efficiency at the same time. It just doesn't work. In fact, the pursuit of beauty so often comes in ways that look from the outside to be wasteful. And yet every week we pray, you and I both pray, right? We prayed it this morning, thy kingdom come. We're saying, God, we want your kingdom to come from heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're asking ourselves is, is that if God's kingdom really is a kingdom of beauty, a kingdom where we don't have to worry about squeezing every last drop out of something, What does it look like then to insist on living lives that seek beauty in the middle of a world that's more worried about utility? That's kind of our orienting question, this little series. And this morning we're sitting again. We started last week with this story. We'll consider it again today. We'll move on to Psalm 27 next week, and then we'll actually pick up this story one last time uh, the first Sunday in February. We're sitting with this story, an unnamed woman who pours a whole bottle of perfume, very expensive perfume, worth a year's wages, whatever that is. Conservatively, let's call it $20,000. She pours a whole $20,000 bottle of perfume over Jesus' head. And there are other people around the table, mostly pretty critical, who snarl and they get all self-righteous and they say, why this waste? They accuse her of wasting the perfume And Jesus jumps to her defense and says, no, you don't understand. What she has done is beautiful. 
What she has done is beautiful. We're thinking more about this account this morning. Last week, we considered more the the beauty of what the woman did, of her actions. This week, we're considering the beauty of Jesus' presence and Jesus' response. And what we see is that one of the most beautiful things we can do is exactly what Jesus himself did, which is to notice and to love the most overlooked people in the room. One of the most beautiful things we can do is to notice and to love the overlooked. Before we get too far, um, I just want to remind you of the setting. Here's how the story starts. Jesus is in Bethany. He's reclining at the table. This is verse 3 if you're following along. He's reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the Leper. Now that's a nickname. If you had that nickname, you would wish that nickname would die out. We don't know anything else about this guy, Simon. All we know is that he hosted Jesus for dinner, and at some point in his life, he'd had leprosy. And isn't it something that, that his nickname is still Simon the leper? Now, he doesn't have leprosy anymore. He can't have had leprosy anymore, because otherwise nobody else would be in the room with him. It's a contagious disease. Jesus might be there, I don't know, but nobody else would be. And it's, it's, I don't think it's, I'm speculating here, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that maybe Jesus was the one who healed Simon the leper. And he's better now. We know that because everybody's back there. He's totally healed, and yet they still call him Simon the leper. You see, the disease has been cured, but his reputation hasn't. So now he has this cruel nickname to go along with the scar tissue that'll be with him the rest of his life. And if he's been completely healed, according to traditional Jewish law, he doesn't have to isolate socially anymore. If you had leprosy, according to Jewish law, you had to isolate. They knew about social distancing 2,000 years ago. It's a contagious disease. This is not new. And yet now he doesn't have to isolate. He doesn't have to social distance anymore. He doesn't have to isolate anymore. And yet they still keep calling him this name that keeps him isolated. There goes Simon, Simon the leper. There he goes again. Don't think, by the way, that Jesus doesn't know exactly what he's doing here. Don't think that Jesus ends up in Simon the leper's house by accident. No, he makes a point. That's where I'm going tonight. He could have gone just about anywhere. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus had friends and he had followers who were very wealthy and who were very influential. He could have gone there. But he chooses Simon the leper. And it actually gets even more significant because if you you noticed early in the story, all these little details give us so many rich clues into what's going on here. It says the Passover is two days away. If that doesn't mean anything to you, consider this. We're considering this story from Mark 14. Jesus is crucified and killed in Mark 15. Jesus is two days, give or take, because the Hebrews counted inclusively, so it could have been two, it could have been three, but Jesus is two or three days away from being killed, and he knows it. He knows what's coming. He's getting to the absolute climax of his life when every moment counts. He could have chose somewhere maybe more strategic, 
If every moment counts and you're trying to get your message out to as many people as possible and build this movement that you're trying to build, don't you think you might choose to spend some of your last moments with some people who are a little more well-connected? Maybe who could protect you? Maybe who could throw around a little bit of social weight and influence and help you out? Or at least who are going to be better positioned socially to help get your message out? And Jesus chooses to spend the evening with Simon the leper. And he's not just stopping in for a quick visit for the optics and then moving on. Scripture tells us he's reclining, which means exactly what it sounds like. Now, in ancient cultures, you actually used to, used to eat while reclining, while laying down. So in other words, Jesus isn't just coming, paying a quick visit, doing what he has to do and moving on. No, he's sitting and he's kicking his shoes off and he's relaxing and settling in for the evening and an unhurried meal. He's enjoying himself. Even just by, by visiting the house of Simon the leper, do you see? Jesus is going out of his way to love the overlooked. Nobody else would have been in that house, I've, I wager, if Jesus wasn't in that house. And Jesus chooses two nights before his death, maybe three, to have dinner at Simon. Simon the leper's. And so now in the middle of dinner, here comes this woman, a woman that probably nobody else knows. We never even learn her name. And she empties this $20,000 bottle of perfume over Jesus' head. Just try to put yourself, try to put yourself there. You're at dinner, it's a, it's a cramped house, it's not big enough for everybody who's in there. And there's Jesus, whatever he looks like. And this woman, out of nowhere, just comes and dumps this thing. I I imagine everybody sees it, and there's a stunned silence. Does she have any idea what she's doing? Maybe that's what everybody else is thinking. Maybe that's what she's thinking. I mean, you've got to figure you're not going to empty something worth so much without having thought it over, but who knows? Now try to put yourself in her position. You think she's feeling some nerves? Everybody else knows what she's doing. She knows what she's doing. What do you think she's feeling? Wondering, doubting, questioning, is this okay? Well, Jesus, is, is this too bold? Can I, even, can I even approach Jesus like this? Will he know what I'm doing? Do I know what I'm doing? Is this too much? Or what if Jesus disapproves? And maybe even in spite of what she thinks is her better judgment, something in her compels her to do this anyway. And there's the uncomfortable silence. And then maybe a couple of quiet whispers, which turn into a few murmurs, which grow and grow until they become some form of outrage and confirm all her worst fears. 
as everybody else in the room gives her some version of, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? You just wasted that. You could have sold that for a year's wages and given it to the poor. Look how much good you could have done. You know, the tone of voice that makes you feel about this big. What a waste. And then Jesus, maybe quietly as well, firmly, we know, says, leave her alone. I love that. Don't you love that? That actual phrase is right there. Leave her alone. Go pick on someone your own size. She has done a beautiful thing. And relief crashes over her and washes away all the anxiety of taking the criticism that she was taking. Why? Because Jesus loves the overlooked. The exact same thing he did with Simon the leper he is doing with the woman. And I wish I could even use her name, but we don't know it. With Simon, it was more subtle. It was just by showing up. It was a quiet affirmation of his worth. With this woman, it's much more public. It's much more obvious that Jesus himself is eager to rush to her defense and to speak up in a culture, remember, by the way, when basically nobody was going to rush to any woman's defense. This was a culture where women were not even allowed to testify in court because they were not trusted. They weren't valued, they weren't defended, and here comes Jesus rushing to her defense. Why? Because Jesus loves the overlooked. There's something beautiful about that, you see? There's something beautiful about not taking the path of least resistance. It would have been a lot easier for Jesus to, well, you know, this is just kind of culturally, and I kept quiet. No, and in fact, what happens? He enrages the people even further, so much so that it starts to set in motion the events that will lead to his death. But in God's beautiful kingdom, we don't take the path of least resistance. And there's really no calculation of how is this going to look and what will this turn into. We simply love the overlooked because it's, because it's beautiful, because it's good, because that's what God himself has done, that he loves us even when we are overlooked by everybody else. One of the um, joys of my line of work and, and and me getting to serve as the pastor here is that I get to see instances of this. And I get to see it in a number of ways, one of which is through visiting members of our church who can't get out. And I've been struck over the past couple of years how there is a quiet, like never drawing attention to itself, but there's a small, quiet current of loving those who are overlooked, even in our own church family. When I'm, making, when I'm making a visit very often, um, this has just been happening more and more lately. 
when I'm making a visit to somebody who's maybe they're in a nursing home or maybe they're home but they don't drive, I'll ask them, well, have you been in touch with anybody else from the church? And there are two names who come up over and over and over. I won't name them by name because both of these people are humble and would kill me uh, if, I, if I, they would think I'm embarrassing them. I would say I'm honoring you, but you don't want me to, so I won't. But you know who you are. One of them is um, a little bit limited herself. She can't get out all that much. She gets out some. And I'll tell you what, she just works the phones. She just works the phones. She told me at one point, actually, early on in the pandemic, she said, oh, I'm just, I'm just calling through the whole church directory. I'm just trying to call everybody and check in and see how, see how they're doing. And I don't have a whole lot to do during the day, so I can make a few calls a day, and I figure I'll get through it in a month or so. That's beautiful. You see? She's loving the overlooked. She's expressing the beauty of Christ just by making a couple phone calls, especially to other people who can't get out that much, who need to hear a friendly voice. The second person I have in mind, this is, um, she's a little less broad, but she's, she's no less deep. And what she's essentially done is adopted two or three of our homebound members. And she calls them, and then she makes a point to go see them and go visit them. I didn't actually know she was doing this. She didn't ask permission, not that you have to ask permission to do something like this. Just a couple people that God had laid on her heart. And she calls every week or two, and she goes to see them, I think maybe every month or so. Drops in and visits when she's able. And I'll tell you what, when you're, I don't know this from experience, but I do know it from chatting with a lot of our folks who are homebound. When you're homebound, when you're stuck at at your home, or if you're stuck in a home, there is nothing better than somebody making a point to come see you. In fact, it's commonly reported that one of the greatest frustrations of those who are growing more and more elderly is loneliness. And so here are two members of our own church family who are just so, so good at this. At simply loving the overlooked. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. The the pandemic... um, changed a lot of things. It, it forced us as a church. We didn't have any online service before the pandemic, and now we've got an online service. And we still broadcast our services three years in. And I don't see an end to it. I think we'll probably continue to do that. There's, there's good that's come from it. There's a lot of good that's come out of it. I've begun to wonder lately if there's also some danger in it. Here's what I mean. An online church service is a lot more efficient than an in-person church service. It's so easy, and I actually mean this for those of us in the room more than I do for those who are home. It's so, and I mean it especially for myself, it's so easy to check the box and assume we've done our outreach and connected with people who are hard to connect with just because we broadcast our service on YouTube, and so they're able to see it, and we've done what we can do. And I've just started wondering more and more lately, is that the best way to love the very people who are feeling the most overlooked? Or in the language of this series, is that the most beautiful way for us? I'm not suggesting, for those of you who are online, I'm not suggesting we're going to quit our online services. Far from it. I think they're good. I think they're helpful. They do a lot of good. 
and it is efficient. And that's not all bad. I guess the question I'm wondering is, and this is for all of us, and this is especially for me, is that enough? Or is there a more beautiful way? What does it look like to love the overlooked? Let me offer um, just one more example from a friend. This one is less personal, but just as beautiful in my mind. I have a friend who recently started making a point of not going through self-checkout lines. Now, I don't know if any of you, especially if you go to the Walmart on Lafayette, do you notice like they have this massive self-checkout and then one cash register open and a line four or five big full carts deep? And he says, whenever I go, even if it's like that, I stand in line and I just wait. And my first response was, why? Like, you're wasting so much time. And he said, well, I guess I just wondered, like, am I really so important that I can't spend an extra five minutes waiting in line? And if I'm in that much of a rush, I'm probably doing something else wrong anyway. And five minutes or ten minutes waiting in line seems like a small price to pay to get to look an overworked cashier in the eye and to ask her how her day is going and to tell her she's doing a great job. And he said, I don't, I don't always, like sometimes I really am in a rush and I've just got to get home or whatever, and so I'll, I'll do the self-checkout. But whenever I can. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> there's, there's just something beautiful about it, and part of the beauty is that, is that it's not efficient. And that by some measure, some of us might say, that's a waste of time. You could be doing something else with your time. And yet for this friend of mine, he says, ah, that's, it's worth it to me. It's worth it to me. And just imagine if enough people adopted that conviction, they might have to open two cash registers at Walmart. And not only would the lines get shorter, but now one more person is employed and able to earn a living for their family. I'm not saying you have to do this exact thing. More than anything, I want to show some examples and help just stoke our imagination for what does it look like to live the values of God's beautiful kingdom, even in the middle of a world that values utility and efficiency over beauty, what does it look like to live counterculturally beautifully? What does it look like, in other words, to love those who are overlooked? If you find any of this compelling, I would wager this that it's because you see yourself in this story, whether it's the story of the cashier or whether it's the story of the woman and the perfume. I mean, whether you're able to to name it or not, each of us, we all have corners in our lives where we feel overlooked, or where we feel lonely, where we feel insecure or anxious. You might have a corner of your life where you feel like an imposter, like you just, (laughs) you're in way over your head and you're just waiting for somebody to figure you out. But just like Jesus did not overlook Simon the leper, and just like Jesus did not overlook this this unnamed woman, he has not, and he will not, overlook you. Do you know that? For God so loved the world. Not just a select few, but God so loved the world. Everyone in it, which means the same God. Have you guys been? Um, have you guys seen the images from the new James Webb Telescope? My goodness! If you have, you know what I'm talking about. This brand new telescope that was launched, I think, last fall, and it's sending back these. Ast- 
astonishing images of of the gal like just hundreds of billions of stars in one picture. How I just wow. These are photos. Even even when you look at them on your little computer screen, somehow these are photos that make you feel tiny, like a, a pinprick in existence. And from the perspective of a hundred billion galaxies, like you kind of are. Do you believe that the God who holds all of that in the palm of his hand still runs to you? Still runs to the broken? In your own weakness and loneliness and insignificance and imposter syndrome and feeling like you're overlooked in your anxiety, that in all of that, the God who holds the universe that we're seeing in the James Webb Telescope gave his life for you. So that you and I might find the life that we have lost in him. See, this story, the unnamed woman, and I would add Simon the leper, is not, it's not just a distant, abstract story it's the story of you and the story of me. It's the story of love. It's a story of beauty and our God of beauty who loves the overlooked. Let's pray together. We forget that you love us, Lord. Forgive us for forgetting. Would you make us into men and women who love deeply and beautifully and who are motivated by your deep and beautiful love for us? Transform us by the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.